Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. Hi Katie, how are you? I'm good Afif, I am recovering after yesterday. What an amazing day. Why don't you tell everyone where we were? So Katie and I were at the Breastfeeding Awards, um, organised by Friends of Breastfeeding. We were nominated for a couple of categories. Um, Katie was nominated for the... So, which one was it? I was only nominated for one award, let's just say. I was I was nominated for the Social Media uh, Breastfeeding Advocate of the Year. And there goes Afif with his three nominees, uh, nominations, I should say. Yeah, so I was nominated for the Healthcare Provider of the Year and Breastfeeding Advocate of the Year. And I was also sort of partially involved in another nomination with Laura Dowling. Although I thought Laura was a very worthy contender, unfortunately, she didn't win. But um, I actually won the um, Breastfeeding Advocate for the Yay. Year Award. So I was very delighted. So both of us won an award, which is great because it would have been totally <laughs> awkward if one of us won and the other one didn't. But, you know, both of us won. So it's great. So congratulations. Thanks, Afif. I was actually thinking when I won, I was like, yes, I'm one up. So if I, if we were doing the podcast today, when I came to the house, I was going to bring my award and just sit it on the table. Just, yes. just yes. to remind you. Yes, well, you still actually ended up going home. You went home with an award, but I didn't. My award, unfortunately, (laughs) smashed in transit. But I actually think that you snuck in behind the stage (laughs) and... and and broke it so that I wouldn't get one. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that you did that. But anyway. It was an amazing day though, wasn't it? It was so good to see so many people in the room, so positive about breastfeeding, everyone sharing their journey. And it was so inspiring to see so many other people all taking their time out to actually attend this event and really promote breastfeeding. Yeah, it was great. And my kids came, um, lots of slagging afterwards. So um, it was, it was, no, it was fantastic. And we had a very fun table. So we had a yeah. lot of, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of great chats and a great time. So anyway, moving Let's on. Let's get down into this. So what are we talking about today? We're going to talk all about the boobs. We're going to talk about sore nipples, cracked nipples, potential mastitis and how we treat them. Um, so we're going to start from the top. Yes. So I think it's a very important topic to discuss because I think a lot of mums fear having, you know, soreness associated with breastfeeding because I think a lot of mums feel that it is a rite of passage, that yeah. you should endure some pain during the early period in order for you to successfully breastfeed. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah, because I think a lot of parents, a lot of moms are told, like everyone wants to tell them their story. Oh my God, my nipple was so bad. It was so cracked. You could expect this. And it's a bit like a birthing story. That's not right for everyone. And to be honest, it is not a rite of passage. The nipples shouldn't end up with breaks or cracks. Um, it's normal to have pain um, or I should say discomfort really. And I suppose pain is very subjective and what we describe as being extremely painful and uh, quite mild. But the thing is, it should be for the first 10 to 20 seconds of a feed and then it just eases off. But if it's continuing or you put that baby on, you latch and you're going, oh my God, this is just not right. Then you unlatch very, very quickly. It's important to explain why nipple pain occurs if it does occur in terms of a latch. So I'm going to try and get a little bit graphic and describe what should happen when a baby latches. So when a baby actually latches, just imagine the nipple and a bit of the areola inside the baby's oral cavity. In order for there to be effective milk transfer, the actual nipple shouldn't be touching anything inside the mouth cavity. And in order for that to happen, the baby needs to be able to get the nipple all the way back into the soft palate. So if you look at the roof of your mouth, it is divided into the hard palate. So that's the bony bit just behind your teeth and the soft palate, which is towards the inside of your mouth, just before your throat, basically. So when a baby achieves a good latch, the nipple is all the way back into the 
soft palate area, and it's poking in and out within the mouth cavity as the baby sucks, not being compressed or touched by anything. If a baby does not achieve that deep latch, then the nipple actually sits in the front part of the mouth and it is being compressed between the tongue and the hard palate. So it's literally being squished with every suck. And imagine your nipples being pinched, basically. And that's the sensation or that's the feeling. And that's why mums get pain. So that actually causes nipple damage if it is sustained. And one of the telltale signs is when you unlatch a baby and take the nipple out, the tip of the nipple looks like almost the tip of a lipstick tube or lipstick. um, uh, What are they called? It's lipstick. Yeah, lipstick. There you go. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yeah. So that's why it's important to learn proper technique from the outset to ensure that a baby can achieve a deep latch. Now, I think the, re- the reason mums can experience discomfort in the early part is that the baby is still learning that technique and it may take a while after the baby latches to get the nipple all the way back to the soft palate. Absolutely. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when we talked about the nipple should go into the mouth and come out of the mouth in the exact same shape. If it is wedged, if it has a ridge, then that indicates that the latch is not as deep as it could be. Now, I'm going to just run through because we're talking about how damage occurs. I'm going to talk through how you would latch your baby and give you a very brief scenario of how to do that. So first of all, the biggest thing is look at your positioning yourself. The one thing I would tell parents is the only thing that you really need when it comes to breastfeeding is often a very small footstool. So go to Little or or Aldi or any of these and the little footstools that you, footsteps I should say, that you your toddler will use uh, going forward to toilet train is a perfect size. And the reason I say you use one of these is that because when you put your feet on it, it means you lean back into your chair. I often see mothers sitting bolt upright, leaning over a baby and they end up bringing their breast to baby rather than baby to breast. I'm not a big fan of nursing pillows. Definitely, if it's just a single baby, obviously for twins or multiples, it's a very different story. And the reason I say this is, again, often mums put the pillow on and then they put the baby lying flat on their back and kind of with their head turned to the side. It's a bit like if you think about yourself, if you're lying flat on your back and you're taking a drink with your head tilted, it's very hard, one, to take a drink and even with the swallowing technique. So you can imagine how hard and difficult that is for a baby. And you'll nearly always end up with a more shallow latch in this situation. So starting from the beginning, sit well back into your chair and put your feet up in a little footstool. Bring your baby to you. And by that, I mean bringing them tummy to tummy. So your baby should be literally glued to you. Um, And that means that their nipples, their belly button, their front bum, their knees are all touching off your body. When you do this, you can use your arm then to put around the back. And if we were doing a cross cradle hold, you can allow the biggest thing is allowing the head to kind of tilt back. So we don't want, um, if the hand is too high or somebody puts a hand on the back of the head, the baby automatically leans back and they don't particularly like it very much. So if we actually have our hand, the palm of our hand between the shoulder blades, it allows the baby's head to kind of tilt back. And we always bring, this is the biggest thing to remember, chin to breast first. When you bring nipple to nose, it actually gives a more shallow latch in this situation. What we're looking for is chin to breast. It means the baby tilts the head back. They open their mouth wide enough and basically you hug on. That does not mean that you push their head on. You put pressure from between the shoulder blades and just hug them on nice and deeply. That means the baby's mouth can go up and over, reaching that nipple going past the hard palate and back up to the soft palate. 
just remember that babies are learning this. The hands are very, uh, the hands are very much needed in the early days. So we try to avoid wrapping the hands up and putting uh, mitts or anything like that on them. The hands are like the GPS system to the sat nav. They try to navigate around the breast so that leads them to bring their kind of chins to the breast and being able to know where the nipple is and locate. Also down the line, the hands are really important for squishing the breast and massaging the breast if they want to increase milk flow and everything else as they get that little bit older. So if you're struggling with the hands, just get your partner to maybe move the hands either side of the breast a little bit out of the way, um, but they are important not to hold back. When you latch your baby on, then bring your arm around into like a cradle hold and just sit right back. If you're sitting well back into your chair, pull your hips a little bit more forward and your baby then leans nearly on top of your body. And this is like a bit of a cheat laid back feeding position. It just means that baby is now a little bit more on top of the breast if the flow is quite fast they can um they can cope with it an awful lot better and they don't need any holding on the breast so they can actually if they remove themselves or go into a more shallow position they'll often revert and move, open their mouth wider and go back on themselves it is all about when people are considering is it a good latch you need to ask yourself is it comfortable and are they able to transfer milk well so are you hearing those lovely audible sucks and swallows and if either one of those is not working then I always say remove the baby so unlatch the baby and how you do that is use your finger into the very corner of the mouth, go between the gum ridges and just turn your finger and then uh, release the baby from the breast. Don't let them suck because they've got a very good suck reflex and they'll hold onto your nipple and actually cause you more pain. So just be nice and gentle for yourself and don't leave a baby sitting there. If you're kind of going, oh God, this is really sore, but you're at the end of your tether. It's taken you five go times to latch on because one bad latch that you leave the baby on for a prolonged period of time can lead to trauma. And then even if we improve that latch and positioning afterwards, it still means that you have to put up with that little bit of tenderness and pain afterwards while that nipple heals. So if it's sore, if it's really, really significant, that you're going, oh my God, this is not bearable, then this is time to remove baby and latch again. If a baby is in a position that necessitates them to turn their head towards the nipple, then you need to reposition the baby. The baby does not have good head control at that stage. And if they need to turn to one side or another, it means that they have lost control of their head and it's unlikely that they'll be able to maintain a deep latch. And oftentimes you'll find that your latch becomes shallower and shallower if the baby's head needs to be turned. So a good position is as Katie described it, but also remember that their ears, their hips and their shoulders, ears, shoulders and hips all need to be in a straight line in order for the baby to be well positioned. Yes, absolutely. And by that, you'll even see it that you shouldn't be able to see the corner of the baby's mouth. If the baby is well latched, the chin is embedded in the breast, both cheeks are touching evenly and the nose and the nose is free. And this is a big thing. I hear, see it all the time. I'm not sure if you do, Afif, but mom's always holding their breast out of the way of the nose. If your baby is in the right position, regardless how big your breast is, your baby should not have their nose smudged in. What it generally means is maybe your elbow is sticking out and you just need to pull it back into your body or sometimes just tuck those baby your baby's bum in with the, your elbow can lead to the nose coming free. If their nose is really embedded, it probably means that the baby's a little high going on the breast or a little bit too much pressure from the top of the or the bottom of the baby's skull. Yeah. And I think it's important to, as well to say that it may be hard to visualize what we're saying. So but I think it's a great description of how to latch your baby well. I think a lot of this will make sense once you begin to breastfeed, if you haven't started, or if you are early in your breastfeeding days, just be cognizant of the points that Katie has just made. Despite all of this, some mums still do experience sore nipples. And um, I think this is an important time to try and tell mums how to deal with sore nipples if they do occur. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if they're sore but intact, then firstly, I suppose we go back to the starter with good latch, good attachments, the priority of everything. Then um, as expressing a little bit of breast milk just into the nipple area can actually work wonders. Sometimes a lot of little kind of gentle bams. There's loads on the market. Personally, my favourite would be the Multiman Compress. And these can be stored in the fridge. And if you take them out, they're quite large. So if you just cut them in half um, and save yourself and then put, put them on the breast after feeding, um, they can be just really, really soothing. They haven't got a great healing property. They're not major healing properties, but they will keep the area moist and just can be really nice and comforting. Lastly, silver shells. I know I speak about this all the time. I particularly love this product. So we know silver is a natural antimicrobial, antibacterial element. And we would use it quite a lot in uh, dressings, wound dressings as well. And the aim of them is actually to provide, we need a moist wound environment for wound healing, but too moist can lead to wound breakdown. So we just need to ensure with this product that we use them correctly. So if you're using them, you hand express one to two drops into the silver shell, place them against the breast and you remove after about 30 minutes to an hour, generally an hour. If you leave them prolonged, it can lead to the area becoming too moist and this can actually make things a little worse. So just all these products are fantastic, but how they work is important and following manufacturer's guidelines. Some mums can also have injury or trauma to their nipples so they can have cracked nipples. How can mums or what should we do in that situation if the nipple damage gets to the stage whereby um, there is actual visible damage onto the nipples? Yeah, this is a big one. I get, I guarantee there's so many moms listening in going, oh my God, this is me. Or I remember that. It can be very upsetting for a mother when she's trying to latch on. And pain is very difficult to deal with. Like sometimes you look at the nipple and you go, God, it doesn't look too bad. But actually the pain you feel is just, it's huge. So, okay, we start at the very beginning. If I go out and see a client, I take a full history to see what's happened. I take a birthing history and I go through everything that has happened between now or since the baby was born and to the time I'm actually seeing them. I do a full assessment on both, both mother and, and baby. And by that, I mean, I look at the breast, I feel and palpate. I look at the injury that's at hand. I look at the baby. I do a full oral assessment as well. Priority, again, as I always say, is latch and attachment um, and attachment, bringing baby to the breast. Sometimes latch mightn't be too bad, but the positioning is, is incorrect. We always start with that. Then going on again, we apply maybe a little bit of breast milk to the affected area, which can be very effective. Oral assessment is really important. Sometimes when it comes to tongue tie, and I know we've spoken about this before, there's very for and against, but depending on the severity, we only consider a tongue tie if it is actually impacting a mother's breastfeeding journey. Just to let you guys know that we are going to have a episode fully dedicated to tongue tie um, coming up in the very, very near future. I'm sure it's going to spark a lot of debate. debate. I'm, I yes. think that was a Phoebe's way of going, don't go into it, Katie. We need to speed this along. <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, yes, so we will go into an oral assessment is really, really important because if the restriction is causing the shallow latch, then it's important that we deal with it. Occasional use. So when we uh, nipple shields, this is something that comes up time and time again. Nipple shields get a really bad, they're kind of negative press in so many ways. And I think it's how we use them. It is obviously sometimes it will give a mother a little bit of reprieve um, by using a nipple shield for a very short term situation. It should be used under the guidance of an IBCLC or even a breastfeeding support worker so that they're used correctly. How we apply the nipple shield is important, but really we use it in the shortest term possible. So sometimes every feed for 24 hours, the second day is maybe alternative feeds and then getting the baby right back onto the breast without using it. If we've only got one breast that is affected and the other not, then we don't use nipple shields on both. But these can 
improve situations very, very well for a mother and they can cope with a little bit of discomfort while we've worked on latch and attachment, whatever caused the injury at hand. Washing the breasts once a day is important. So just normal soapy water um, to remove any bacteria around the area because obviously our skin has bacteria all over and it just reduces the instance of that uh, getting towards any broken um, open pores in the skin. And then, yes, lanolin is something I hear time and time again. Lanolin for me, um, and I think a lot of my lactation consultant uh, colleagues will agree, it's not one of our preferred products anymore. We see a higher incidence of allergies when it's used, skin irritations as well. And also some of the research is showing that there's a higher incidence of bacterial infections with regards to lanolin. So for me, avoid. It's not a product I like to use. If the nipple is intact and you're just using it as a barrier, then fair enough. And you find that it's not causing any um, implications, then keep going. And then lastly, silver cups. It is still one of my favourites. I do love these. Again, it depends on how they are used. What I will say is just to be really careful that if you are very full or engorged, that when you have them on and your bra's over it, that the bra's not too tight, kind of pushing or embedding it into the breast. And that can actually cause more issues. So just be very cautious of that. Only keep them on for bed an hour max afterwards, or it can lead to more trauma. In some situations, we do take a baby off the breast for alternative feeding, and we would move a mother onto exclusive pumping for a short period of time to allow the uh, nipple to heal a little bit more before we uh, put baby back to breast. I just wanted to add a couple of things. I get asked a lot of the time, is the pain I'm experiencing the pain you guys are talking about? Or is it the normal discomfort that most mums feel in their early breastfeeding journey? So how can we distinguish between the two types of pain and discomfort? I know it can be sometimes difficult because pain is subjective and I don't want to minimize one type of pain over another. But generally, if you can speak through the discomfort and your toes aren't curled up, Um, then that's more likely to be the initial discomfort that should subside after about, you know, 10 to 20 seconds after the baby latches. However, if it's this kind of severe pinching pain that is toe curling, that, you know, you're... You know straight away. You sort of know straight away that I should unlatch my baby and try again and think of the positioning tips that Katie has described. The second thing that may happen with cracked nipples is that Sometimes babies could actually suck some blood from the nipple and swallow it. And sometimes babies after that, because blood can be an irritant to the stomach, they can bring that blood up, sometimes almost immediately, sometimes after a couple of hours. So sometimes babies can have vomiting episodes that can have some fresh blood in them. And sometimes they can have some coffee ground vomits if the blood has stayed in the stomach for a couple of hours afterwards. So don't be too concerned if that happens with visibly cracked nipples, but it's always a good idea to get a baby checked out if they are persistently vomiting um, either fresh blood or coffee ground vomits. Yeah, and I think it is really important that Generally speaking, I always say, look, for the first two weeks, you may have discomfort, 10 to 20 seconds, even 20 to 30, let's be honest, where you'd be like, ooh, I can feel it. And then it passes. You can have a full-blown conversation with me. We might be tender, but you make it through. But if you're sitting there and those toes are curling, then that's not right. And even if somebody tells you that latch and attachment is beautiful and you're doing really well, if you're in that much pain and you're getting cracked nipples, that's not right. You need help. And this is where sometimes you just need to move on and uh, contact an IBCLC, either in the community or private uh, to get you help. Moving on to mastitis, and I suppose the first myth to debunk in relation to mastitis is that it is always um, because of a bacterial infection. And I think there's so many moms out there, they have an honest 
honestly, a really genuine fear of mastitis when they think of breastfeeding. Um, and it often puts a lot of mothers off with the thoughts, oh my God, I'm going to get mastitis, so I can't go through this. Let me just say this, the majority of mothers will never experience mastitis. Um, there's a small cohort like all of us. It's just unfortunate that uh, can lead to us being, um, to getting mastitis and sometimes we have some predisposing factors to it. When it comes to it and mastitis we're talking about is that we need to now think of it on the kind of spectrum of mastitis. It's an inflammatory process. Often you'll see is engorgement is the start of it. Then through you can, uh, like if that's not dealt with and that puts us at risk of potential blockages and then that can lead to uh, what's often referred as mastitis. And then if the inflammatory process obviously worsens, it can go on to an infective mastitis where we do need an antibiotic, but that's where it's systemic, where we know the mother is now actually systemically unwell with a high fever, uh, flu-like symptoms, um, and just generally feeling unwell with generally a red patch around the breast. And it can be significant or it can be one blocked wedge on the breast itself. So how does it happen? Milk generally flows through kind of a microscopic tube-like uh, ductal system. And what happens then is that if it is compressed or it's not emptied effectively by maybe the baby or if the mother had too much milk or potential oversupply, or if they were, how would I say it, the, the baby had gone longer spells and we've got milk stasis where it's sitting in the breast longer, or on the other chance, maybe you're wearing a really tight bra and it's compressing against the ductal system. It can lead to swelling or infl inflammation around process around that ductal system. And it leads to narrowing of the, uh, the ductal system, which uh, then the milk doesn't flow very well from the breast. Initially, we have to look at it. You'll often find like a, a patch of redness or it can feel like a swelling around the breast. This often happens if your baby has gone a long spell without feeding or if your baby has suddenly started sleeping the night in the moms that have an oversupply, they are more predisposed to potential blockages um, because obviously their breasts, the baby doesn't take all the milk that is left within their breast. Um, so these are just things that we are a bit more aware of. And if it comes to it and the baby is uh, able to keep feeding through it, this is the biggest thing. So I hear time and time again, people receiving misinformation and inaccurate information to stop breastfeeding if they've got mastitis or any inflammation. It's actually more important that we allow the baby to feed away at the breast as they normally do. We don't jump in with um, any pumps anymore because, again, you're just exacerbating the uh, situation. And it also means that you're putting extra pressure on that ductal system, which leads to more inflammation to the area. Instead of uh, the best way to describe it is thinking like of a sprained ankle that you'd put ice to it. You make it cold, you rest it and bring down the inf inflammation. And by doing that, sometimes we often advocate for taking an anti-inflammatory. So neurofen or ibuprofen, I should say. Um, but just make sure that it's not in combination with any codeine or any other medications. Yeah. And just to reiterate, paracetamol and ibuprofen are safe to take during breastfeeding. And I just want to reiterate what Katie said is you do not need to stop breastfeeding to recover from mastitis. Yes. Actually, it's one of the biggest things because you, if you stop and it's very sudden, that means there's more milk left sitting in the breast that now is actually exacerbating the situation. Um, like that, we don't want to go on the other side and people are still told the old protocol would be pump to clear the blockage. But actually that's having more of an impact because one, it can in increase supply if it's in the very early days, but also um, it's increasing that inflammation around the site. So think ice to the breast for even an hour, like an ice pack to the breast for an hour after feedings or every hour in between feedings. Just watching a really good deep latch is really important here. Resting. So this is obviously telling the mother that the body's under pressure and um, so it's really important that she takes a step back and actually, you know, watches and, and follows the baby's lead and feeds more. A lot of the time we see mastitis occurring around times of 
events and engagements like uh, the baby's christening, a wedding, a family gathering. And that can be because there can be gaps between the feeds that we weren't really, that don't normally occur, but can happen if the baby's in the car for longer periods or they're being passed around from people or one person to another and they're happy and content, then feeds can be spaced out. Or if you're lucky on the other side and your baby tends to sleep a little bit longer at night, then we just need to make sure and be cautious of ourselves that we mind our own breast to it until our, our supply kind of uh, reduces to meet the reduced need of the baby. I should have said from the beginning, everyone should be looking at the breasts every morning. It's really important you lift up your arms, particularly in those early days, or if you have nipple trauma or you have issues at the time that you just check and palpate that we know what our breasts feel like. If you were getting to the point where you feel like you're getting flu-like symptoms, you're shivery, you're feeling starting to feel quite unwell and your temp is higher than 38 degrees, it is important that you seek medical advice with your GP. And if it is indicated, if we've got a redness that is swelling or starting to spread around the breast and you're clinically unwell, then it is important that the GP you will make the clinical indication whether you need an antibiotic and it's generally protocol and the HSE protocol is there for a reason seven to ten days and the antibiotic by choice is generally flucloxacillin. Yeah unless you're allergic to penicillins yeah, then there are alternatives. Absolutely. So we're now going to move on to thrush which um, I think we were just discussing this earlier that it's probably a bit overdiagnosed in in mums. Absolutely I I suppose years ago, we everyone was diagnosed with thrush, to be honest. Um, I think many clinicians as well, um, healthcare professionals, misdiagnose sometimes milk tongue for thrush, um, when in case it's just normal. Um, it, it's normal, like there's nothing to worry about it. So I suppose, how do we how do we know what, thr- what does thrush look like in a baby? Yeah, so first of all, thrush is usually caused by candida. Now, candida is a type of fungus that is ubiquitous, meaning that it is present everywhere, sits on our skin, sits in the environment. And there are certain things that increase the chance of mum or baby picking up thrush. A course of antibiotics is a big risk factor. So if a mum went on a course of antibiotics for some reason, um, the risk of developing thrush can increase. Again, if a baby goes on a course of antibiotics as well, the risk of thrush can increase. And the reason that happens is because there's always a balance in the, my favorite thing again, microbiome, which is made up of different bacteria and funguses and viruses in various parts of our body. So if you knock off one part of that balance, the balance can tip towards the other organisms present within the microbiome. So if you kill off all the bacteria, then the fungus part or the fungal species within the microbiome can increase. So when breastfeeding, the mother and the baby can both actually serve as the source of thrush. And that's really important actually, because if a mother is being treated for thrush or the baby's being treated for thrush, then it's really important both parties are always treated together. And sometimes people aren't aware of it. So they treat one party, but then it just, it keeps going back between both. um, So it takes longer to actually clear it. Yes. And that's absolutely a key point. So what does thrush look like? So mums can experience pinkness of the nipple. So it's slightly pinker than usual. And the nipples themselves can be shiny or flaky. There's some soreness sometimes associated with thrush. It's different to the pinching pain that you experience um, secondary to a shallow latch. It can happen all of a sudden. It can be after a period of pain-free latching. So all of a sudden you feel, gosh, why am I getting pain again? Sometimes it's important to see whether it's being caused by thrush or not. Um, There may be a burning sensation. There may be some shooting pain that shoots all the way back to the um, uh, deep into the breast on the baby. The thing to watch out for is a buildup of creamy or white patches around the baby's mouth. They're usually on the tongue or sometimes can be on the cheek and sometimes can they can be on the kind of roof of the mouth as well. And it's important not to mistake that with the milk tongue. 
that, you know, sometimes babies can have this creamy coating after a feed, but it should really disappear after a little while. And it shouldn't be there when the baby's feeding again. Yeah, I always tell parents it kind of looks like cottage cheese. You know, the way that it's sitting there, you can't really miss it. That against a milk tongue, they're completely different when you actually know how to diagnose the difference. Okay, so how do we treat it? Well, the treatment for thrush is antifungal medication and they come in a variety of preparations. There are liquids or oral gels for babies and there are creams for mums. And if the treatment with those initial approaches don't result in the resolution of thrush, we can consider prescribing you know, tablet medication for mum and baby to try and get on top of it. But you should always consult with your GP or a healthcare provider before embarking on treating thrush, I think, because it's important for us to review it and make sure that it is thrush. The other thing I wanted to bring up, which I think is important, is if your baby's using any other forms of silicone, so if, if, you, if you are using nipple shields while breastfeeding, but, and if the baby's using soothers, if the baby's getting top-ups with bottles, that while you are treating yourself or your baby for thrush, it is important to disinfect the silicone with Milton, not just the steam sterilization, because the steam sterilization does not sometimes get rid of the fungal spores. And it's important to clean the bottles, the um, soothers and the nipple shields using Milton throughout the treatment. Otherwise, it may actually come back. Lastly, just to say that with regards to your milk, if you are being treated for thrush, um, then you don't store your pumped breast milk because uh, freezing does not eradicate the fungal spores within the milk. The milk that you are using at currently, if you're pumping, you can feed your baby while you're on treatment. But if you are pumping and storing, you don't. Finally, moving on to nipple vasospasm. So tell us all about that, Katie. Okay, so um, I have seen an awful lot more of nipple uh, vasospasm and I'm going to explain exactly what it is firstly. So nipple vasospasm is a constriction of the blood vessels um, and this can often re result in the nipple getting paler in colour. So you could be feeding when you take the baby off, it nearly turns white. And this is down to constriction um, of the blood vessels and it can cause shooting pain that is very, very significant in the mother. They will really complain of how bad it is, um, nearly like cramping in the nipple itself. This can be... Uh, associated with poor latch again and attachment. So we always look at that uh, firstly. Sometimes we have precipitation of symptoms, so more likely going to happen in cold weather. And I'd always ask a mother when we're talking about her symptoms, like would she be prone to getting uh, very cold hands, um, discoloration of the hands or cold hands and feet in the in the cold weather. If a mom is breastfeeding um, in this situation, we would never, if she's complaining of vasospasm, we'd never recommend that she leaves the breasts open to the air. It's about keeping them nice and warm. And this is where you might keep a breast pad on um, and even maybe have it sitting on a radiator just to prevent that, the symptoms after feeding. Um, symptoms can affect one breast um, or both breasts. It doesn't have to be both. And it really, to, in order to diagnose vasospasm, a full history has to be taken and a full, bre uh, full breast examination and also seeing and watching a full feed to see exactly what's going on. We'd always look at the mother's kind of general appearance and the nipples and the breasts um, and we inspect all of this to see what are the colour changes. If it is extreme and you have tried everything, latch and attachment is very good, then there is a medication that may be considered. Um, but again, you'd have to talk to your healthcare provider. And we don't jump in with this initially. We try to use all other, uh, I suppose, treatments firstly before we go down that route. Before we move on, um, we're going to hear a quick word from our sponsors. And apologies to our listeners if you heard some growling in the background. That wasn't me growling at Katie. That was my little dog. <laughs> itching to get into our studio. 
but you were in such great flow, I didn't want to interrupt you. So we'll see you soon. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing, to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 or visit our website at ev.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. And we're back for one of our favourite parts of the show. It's Fief's nerdy segment. So hit us. What are we talking about today, Fief? Well, I'm sticking with dogs and um, you have a dog, don't you, Katie? I do. Would you believe we both have a dog called the same name? Yes. Mine is a buddy, but it's a cockapoo and he is the laziest, gorgeous animal that you could come across. And mine is also a buddy, but mine is a miniature Yorkie. And some of the listeners may have seen some snippets of him on Instagram. And my kids, who are very cynical, say, Dad, you only put buddy on your Instagram page to get more followers. <laughs> yeah, they're probably right, though. Yeah, People um, see a cute dog and it's like it's like a man walking in the park with a cute dog. Women go, oh, look at him. Yes. Um, they mean the dog, not the man. But, but, I, but, I, but I've realised that that was actually um, biting me in the ass because basically whenever I put buddy on my Instagram page, it messes up the algorithm. So apparently all my... <laughs> All my wise nuggets of wisdom are just going to Yorkie owners now rather than (laughs) mothers with human, with human babies. So I had to actually chill out a little bit on on uploading Buddy on on my um, on my Instagram page, which I'm I'm very sad about. But anyway, because I think he does, he does bring joy to a lot of people. In fairness, I will say um, Afif's dog is like their third child. He I've never seen somebody like drool over the animal as much as you do. Well, like I said, he's the only one that gives me love at, in the household at the moment. <laughs> you poor thief. Anyway, let's talk about this very interesting paper. So this was a paper that came out at the end of March from Japan. And what they looked at is that they analyzed over 65,000 infants. And what they have found is that children exposed to pet cats or indoor dogs during fetal development or early infancy tended to have fewer food allergies compared to other children, which I found was very interesting. Now that has been shown in the past and there was always a suggestion that pets reduce the incidence of allergies later on, but this is a large study that sort of confirms those findings. And allergy, as you know, is a big thing. And the paper here quotes that more than one in 10 children are diagnosed with a food allergy and the incidence of food allergies in children continues to rise. And why does that happen? Well, people think that because we're living in increasingly cleaner, more sanitized societies, especially now um, after COVID, everybody's washing their hands. We're not really getting exposed to germs as much. And the theory is that your body isn't getting exposed to enough pathogens or organisms in order for the body to learn how to mount an immune response. And that may increase the incidence of allergies. Um, And there has been previous research suggesting a potential link between dogs or farm animal exposure in pregnancy and early childhood and the reduction of food allergies. Well, in this study, this Japanese study, they studied over 66,000 children for whom data on exposure to various pets and food allergies were available. 
out of those 66,000 children, about 20% of that population had pets either during the fetal period, most commonly indoor dogs or cats, or shortly after the delivery of the baby. And what they found was that amongst children exposed to indoor dogs and cats, there was a significant reduction in incidence of food allergies. And that spanned, you know, the whole spectrum of food allergies. The other interesting thing is that if the family had an outdoor pet, then the risk reduction did not happen. So the pets had to be actually inside the house in order for the reduction in the incidence of allergies to occur. So I suppose that strengthens the theory that being exposed to pets during early life may reduce the incidence um, of allergies. Perhaps surprisingly, children exposed to hamsters had significantly greater incidence of nut allergies. So if you have a hamster, you're more likely to have a nut allergy. But if you have a dog or a cat that are indoor pets, you're less likely to have a myriad of food allergies. That's actually amazing. I'm not a big hamster fan anyway, so I think I'm going with the dog. It seems to be the stronger, the yeah. stronger of the two. That's really amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I am about 15 years late getting the dog, unfortunately. <clears throat> so we should have had Buddy when Maggie was young. But I can't, I cannot imagine looking after a newborn baby and uh, a pet as well. I, I, I really have huge respect for parents that actually have pets. Well, we got Buddy when Jack was just gone a year. Okay. And I think poor Buddy loved the crate because he feared yeah. the love and affection that Jack gave him. So it's very interesting. Now, just there are a lot of caveats with the study. So okay. the data used um, in the study were self-reported, meaning that um, the parents kind of reported the incidence of allergies. Um, so it does rely on the accurate recall of the participants in the study. And again, to emphasize that this study doesn't determine if the link between pet exposure and food allergy is causative, meaning that it's mm -hmm. merely an association. It's hard to prove cause and effect, but it is certainly food for thought. Absolutely. Like, I, I think when you see kids, you know, when they start crawling, they're like eight, nine and they're like they're crawling on the floor and they could be at anything. And then we're still sanitizing so much of the products that we use. Like when you're talking about like food pro or the spoon and the bowls, they don't need to be sanitized. But I suppose people go, I'm going to go over that. You know, I would just want to make sure. But sometimes being exposed a little bit more to our environment actually benefits the child in so many yes. ways. Well, there you go. So moving on to the final segment of today's show, and it is parental questions. A mum here is saying that she started using nipple shields to help her nipples recover after sustaining nipple damage from a shallow latch earlier on. And now she's finding it hard to transition her baby off nipple shields back onto the breast directly. So do you have any advice for mums in that situation? Yeah, this is a tough one. And we do see it quite often. Um, I suppose, firstly, you can try without them, but oftentimes babies become quite reliant on them initially. And moms as well, because it's easier for a baby to latch in many ways with a nipple shield. If your baby's getting very upset, just latch your baby on using the nipple shield initially. And then as your baby kind of gets into the feed without kind of them really noticing, you just kind of pop them off, unlash them, whip off the nipple shield and then reattach. Sometimes it's just that when the baby starts feeding, they nearly draw the nipple out a little bit more if it's that, it's that kind of more flattened in appearance. So that's one way to do it. I always do recommend, though, never to panic. Sometimes it can take longer and longer for, you know, as time goes on, babies get bigger, their mouths become bigger as well, and they're able to manage latching 
an attachment uh, much easier. And especially then you can start taking off the nipple shield a little bit more. I have had clients that have uh, used a nipple shield for nearly three months of their journey. And then they keep trying and keep trying every day and they eventually get the baby off the nipple shield and they go on to breastfeeding exclusively directly at the breast with no other use, uh, no other nipple shields um, for a prolonged period. So don't be disheartened. It, it's pretty much trial and error. It takes time. Perseverance. Great. Well, folks, this brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next week. See you next week.